Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. There was always something he liked about the stillness of a high desert night, black as pitch and scattered with stars. Its stillness seemed to allow other people's minds to run wild with all sorts of imaginative notions. Either the night was cool and magical, filled with the serenity people dreamed of attaining, or it was inhabited by a litany of creepy crawlies, ancient ghosts and demons that terrified the mind into a kind of supernatural rigor mortis. But that, he imagined, depended on which godforsaken sandbox you were being forced to play the game of survival in. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Mark Edward Langley, author of Death Waits in the Dark, an Arthur Nakai Mystery. In this fast-paced novel, macho ex-Marine and Navajo clansman Arthur Nakai, while seeking a killer, grapples with societal issues confronting Native Americans, Navajo, in this country, such as fracking on Native lands and its effect on scarce water, systemic racism and injustices piled on Native populations and Native land, and the proliferation of armed so-called patriotic militias that wreak havoc and sow chaos around Native land and people. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Lee, nice to be here. So you were in the corporate world for 30 years. How did you get into writing mysteries? Well, I had always been reading them. Um, I like to think that uh, I was taught by the best because I started reading Robert Parker when I was in my 20s and then Mickey Spillane and John D. McDonald and so forth. And each of them taught me something about the craft of writing. So I, I got into thinking after reading the first I did of Tony Hellerman, I go, this is what I want to do for a living. I, I want to try to do this and, and, and have fun uh, doing what I want to do. So I started uh, reading his and then I had the idea to take a trip out west. And I did that in my 20s, a two week trip out to Arizona, up through Montana, driving the same road, actually the route that they take in the first book, Path of the Dead, and dictating into a tape recorder. So I would uh, dictate everything I saw, smelt, heard, uh, felt, whatever. And then I came back and uh, transcribed it all down. Well, I loved your descriptions of the landscape that came through. This is your second mystery in the series. How did you come up with your 46-year-old protagonist, Arthur Nakai? Oh, boy. Um, I, I knew what I wanted to say in my books. I don't want to preach to anybody about anything. I like to show different viewpoints and let the reader decide how they want to feel about certain things. So I thought the best vehicle for that would be to have a Native American Navajo person uh, in that area that could best relate 
things that were going on and affecting them in today's society. So I started to develop a backstory and give them a name, which I changed three or four times before I guess settled on Arthur Nikai, um, gave him a wife, give her name, backstories on every character in the book uh, at that time, and then developed a synopsis for each of the chapters and started writing it as I went. And I'm sure you know, uh, you start doing something like that. And then as you're going through it, whether it be through dialogue or whatever, the characters take you in a different direction or a somewhat off-kilter direction than you were going to go. Uh, but I still wanted to end up in the same place I did in the last chapter. So I'll find myself in the first book and the second book here. Around chapter 10, I'll get an idea of how I want it to end. And I'll go ahead and I'll write part of that last chapter so I know where I'm going. and I have a navigational point to get to. Mm. Let's talk more about Arthur. Does he still have to make a living? Does he have any other family? Do he and Sharon ever get to take a vacation? You know, kind of stuff <laughs> I'm interested in. Well, with things like that, Sharon is a, in particular being the, the rated news person that she is. Um, there was a person here in Chicago, um, Kim Bodis, that I got talking with a lot. And we text back and forth. And I, I asked her, I says, what do you give up to have that job that you have? What do you miss that say the average person wouldn't understand because I wanted to have Sharon have that effect. I wanted her to relate the things that them as a couple are missing out on. So she helped me out a lot with the things that you give up to have that profession, you know, and be up at two in the morning and get to work and so forth and whatever. But uh, I wanted them to be pretty much a couple like everybody else is a couple. Um, I don't think I wanted them to be any different, uh, not Native American or not. I wanted them to have the same struggles. And Arthur, pretty much after being 10 years in the Marines, 12 years as part of the, the Shadow Wolves and Border Patrol at the time, um, is done with that. He's living his life uh, with his uh, white Mesa outfitters uh, in the northwestern portion of New Mexico there. So that's pretty much what he's doing in the first book uh, when something happens to his wife that she falls in uh, unexpectedly with the serial killer in the book. And Arthur uses what he's learned uh, through his life and then the military service and in the uh, Shadow Wolves to go from New Mexico to the mountains of Montana and track them down trying to get her back. Mm-hmm. Arthur commanded a Marine Corps unit, the 6th LAR Wolfpack. What inspired you to write about Marines? Well, I never having been in the service myself, um, a lot of the guys that I went to school with, high school with back in the 70s, um, joined right after we graduated, you know. So I had no real knowledge of any of that firsthand, but I did contact them and I wanted to talk to them about certain situations and how get their take on a lot of things and how they feel today about when they served and uh, any struggles they may be having and so forth. And one of the people I talked to, which I mentioned in the, the second book, uh, was a chaplain. And he sat down, we talked, oh, geez, most of the night about relating stories and so forth and uh, things that he had gone through and still goes through, uh, the people that he helps as far as PTSD-wise through the church and so forth now. But uh, I wanted to have him have a base background where he had military service. He had, you know, the Shadow Wolf experience there for, for Border Patrol. And I wanted to give him a way to actually be able to help people and not be like, you know, a, a contrite kind of way of just, you know, uh, making something up to have 
uh, a mythological kind of thing going on or just a you know, a fantasy about Native Americans. I wanted to give them a real history, a real story, uh, a real past. And then that comes through, I think, in the second book where where he's at the wake of one of the guys in that unit. And they were 12. Now there are six. And six of them over the last 12 years have committed suicide. And what I found out with that, uh, I based that chapter on an actual story I did read um, in the Navajo Times that this one guy was having a party on a weekend in the summer and uh, was watching a ball game with his family on TV and just got up without saying a word and went upstairs and, and shot himself in the head. And those kind of things happen. The, the torment they go through every day is a reality that none of us who have been in that position understand. And I really wanted to pay tribute and honor that uh, service by not being gritty enough to, you know, be gratuitous, but just here's what it is. Here's what happens. Here's how they feel, what they think, what happens to them in their mind. And I wanted the struggle on the page to seem real. I actually had some people who read it, who told me that to them, since they were veterans themselves, that the veterans I wrote in the novel were real to them. Mm. You talk about it a little bit, but can you share some of your thoughts about how the VA treats vets who experience PTSD? Uh, I think it's gotten better. It used to be a, uh, a long time ago uh, in recent history, you know, but um, uh, they, they like to throw pills at everything, you know, this and that. Oh, here's a pill. Here's a pill. Here's a pill. That's why it was called Candyland. It's just kind of theory of giving pills for everything. Um, I think they've changed a lot in the way that they hopefully are addressing the situation of that. And it's, it's something that, you know, having not been there, I don't know firsthand of that situation or having had that problem, you know, but I think from what I've heard that it's getting better and they, they seem to be trying more. There's more things available to them than just handing you a, a bag of pills or whatever, you know? So. I like the aspect that um, they actually listen to the person, to what they're saying, what they're going through, and then treat them uh, from based on that experience they're getting and learning from them. So I don't think any is, I'm hoping anymore that there's, there's not as many pills being tossed around uh, to make it easy to, uh, to handle something. But being able to go to different people aside from the VA has been a better, a better experience for them, and hopefully a better a better time to get uh, things straightened out or try to get straightened out. Uh, so Congressman Tom Cole um, is the, is from the Chickasaw nation and Mark Wayne Mullen is from the Cherokee nation. They're both congressmen in Oklahoma. How do you think Arthur Nakai and his wife, Sharon would feel if they knew that those two congressmen just last week August 27th, 2020, joined in introducing the bipartisan American Indian and Alaska Native Veterans Mental Health Act of 2020, which will ensure culturally competent mental health care for Native veterans. How cool is that? I think they would both be, both be applauding that uh, up one side and down the other, because that's, you know, hopefully the, the, the progress you want to see in the world today. Yeah. So you also mentioned the first Native American women elected to Congress, Democrats Deb Holland of New Mexico, 
from the Pueblo of Laguna and Sharice Davis of Kansas from the Ho-Chunk Nation. Yep. Can you expound on your pride and what should be all of our pride in Native American accomplishments? I think personally myself that it is about time that they get the recognition in the halls of Congress that, uh, that they need to have there. Um, so many things over the decades and hundreds of years, you know, that uh, uh, isn't really directed to helping them or considering anything they think or they might want or need. And I think these people that are in there now uh, will actually have a better chance of conveying what is out there needing to be done in these situations, reservations and so forth, because they need their representation. They haven't had representation in Washington um, pretty much forever. I mean, it, and you can't even count way back in the day of the 1800s, because that was just that was just a farce to begin with. But um, having somebody there that cares, having somebody there that knows and has grown up with that and has seen the struggle or the strife uh, most of their lives or all their lives, it's good to have someone there to be able to try to convey what needs to get done and help these people in these situations on reservations, because that's just um, a, a terrible thing. I, I laugh sometimes when I see people talking, you know, about third world country. Oh, they have no water. They, they have no electricity. It's a poor people. You know, we have that here. Mm -hmm. It's on the reservations every day in Arizona, New Mexico, they had to get water trucked in. You got people carrying gallons of water in milk jugs, you know, trying to have water. There's no electricity uh, in a lot of the places. There's no water. They, you know, these are things, there's no heat. You have fire. They're actually cutting firewood and delivering firewood to the elders to actually have, you know, some heat for the wintertime. So these things happen in this country. And I think through my writing, I'm trying to, to, show people what is going on rather than preach to them what's going on. So mm -hmm. they go, oh, I didn't know that. That's, that's interesting. You know, it may want to help them look things up, study for themselves, find out more information, you know, but um, I don't want to beat somebody over the head. I want to just, here it is. You make your own mind up, make your decision, you know, of how you want to think about it, but this is going on. And what the, the people I've interviewed out there are loving the fact that I'm being honest, I'm being open with them, and I'm trying to take situations and things that are important to them on a daily basis and put it into my novels so they understand I'm trying to illuminate uh, the area more, we'll say, to people that might read it, and they might get some understanding as to what's going on, because a lot of people have no idea. They'll see a report on, on NBC News in the morning and go, oh, wow, I didn't know that, you know. Well, that goes on all the time. The little snippets they show for two to three minutes in the news is a daily event. And a lot of people don't understand that. And it really bothers me. If I were out there more and living there to be able to do something, I would definitely be out there with my, my wife trying to go around to things, helping in certain areas. Um, I want to do that. I want to feel a part of the community and I want to be out there and then just and help and do whatever I can. If, it, if it's, you know, loading my truck up with water and taking water somewhere or firewood or whatever, I want to do that. I want to get out there and help than just sitting on the sidelines somewhere and go, oh, that looks bad. Mm -hmm. it, this isn't a political podcast, but um, can't help but notice. And I hope you're going to include in your next Arthur Nakai book more about these, uh, the drilling the current administration is pushing 
on native lands. It's really destroying, destroying them. There's a lot about that in the book. Talk about that. There is, yeah, because I, I, if my father was alive, I could have talked to him about it, but he'd he'd have a different viewpoint than me. But but, um, with with the situation the way it is, I mean, you don't notice it. You're driving out there, you won't see it, or you rarely see a, a, a rig here and there somewhere, you know, or a pump jack or something, you know. But if you're out there, if you can go on Google Earth, for one thing, and you can go to the Four Corners area. And if you look between Bloomfield, New Mexico, and Cuba, New Mexico, down the I-55 quarter there, there are almost 3,000 wells off that road in the 90-mile stretch. Mm-hmm. And you won't see them. The further you come down, the closer you get. These little areas of clean area, little squares will start popping up. And you get down far enough, you'll see nothing off that road on both sides for 90 miles, but gas wells, oil wells, uh, everything through there uh, to get done. And the, you know, water that's, that's hauled off to the side for that and, and how they're all made. And you don't see, um, there was a great documentary I watched the other day called Fractured Land. And it's in Canada, but it's the same situation with this that shows the devastation created by the fracking and the drilling and so forth and how these companies um, are in there. And possibly, you know, they, they say they're doing what they can. They may be doing what they can. Some don't do what they can, um, what they're, you know, categorized to do and cleaning up the areas and so forth. There's a lot of things. When I interviewed uh, a gentleman out there, they call him the Four Corners um, Encyclopedia because he knows everything about the geological of the area, the the plants of the area, the history, the novel history themselves. He teaches at several universities out there and gives uh, dissertations. He takes the kids, uh, college students, out into the field and shows them where things are, you know, what and what's happening. And what's been interesting to me is the companies will deny it right and left, but there is significant stunted growth in the plants that are normally larger out there around these areas where they do fracking and drilling and so forth. So there's, there's pros, there's cons. I talk about both of those in the book and let the reader decide what they want to look at and how they want to think about it. But it may expand somebody's mind to delve into things further, you know, and, and kind of get more information, make their own mind up uh, with more knowledge. Did your research turn up any of the grim scenarios you talk about in the book? Regarding fracking. Yeah, it, it talks. I talk about that in there. I talk about the plants and so forth. Uh, I have one scene in there at a chapter house, which is based on a real event uh, that did happen where people were talking about that and, and the effect it's having on them as a as a, a sovereign nation themselves of being Navajo, because it all dates back to the allotted lands, who has allotted lands, who doesn't have allotted lands. Um, it's it's a kind of a tumultuous thing among them because you'll have people that own the land and then people that don't own the land uh, they're living on. The ones that own the land they're living on can lease portions of that land for drilling or whatever, and they get you know, paid by the oil companies uh, a stipend a month, you know, for what they're uh, doing out there that the other ones aren't getting that. So they're upset about, well, you're getting paid and I'm not. 
Then there's mm-hmm. the whole the whole aspect that it's cultural, so it's like you're destroying our land. You're, you you know, water out there is scarce to begin with, and the fracking and the chemicals in the water they use to do that and break the shale apart is you know, possibly leaching into the water table that is out there that they are drawing from. And who knows? There's people that have, you know, health uh, issues out there because of that. They're saying, you know, so um, things have to be proven in a lot of areas, you know, but these things I talk about because they are going on, they are happening. So I want people to know about that. Uh, They're going to make up their own mind of what they want to think or do, you know, but um, it's just where, I want to get the point across. I want people to know about things and I want to have a develop a story around that where it's part of it, but it's not the main thing about it. Um, so they got, they get a little bit of everything out there. Like I said, the, the Navajo that I've met with are liking that I'm talking about things like that. That's affecting them, affecting them every day. Uh, mm-hmm. They deal with it all the time. You, you can drive out there. There's, there's, there's yellow billboard signs against it uh, up and down that road numerous times. Mm-hmm. You write almost loving descriptions of the New Mexican terrain. Can can you talk? It sounds like your happy place. Can you talk a little more about that? It is. I mean, I mean, truthfully, it is. I mean, when I went out there with my parents when I was twelve years old back in seventy two, I I fell in love with it back then. And when I went back out in my twenties, it was like I, I don't describe the feeling, but it was like coming down from Colorado and through Utah and so forth. Once I got into Utah and into the Four Corners area and the land, I saw it, the, the sunsets, the, the, the red, you know, sand and so I go, I'm home. Mm-hmm. I really felt in my heart and said to myself, I'm home, but this is where I need to be. This is where, this is where I should be, you know? And I think I write uh, that way about it because you can, you can look on Google all you want, but without being out there, and that's what I love about going out there and doing research for, for a while, is that everything in my book, 98% is real. Their locations and things that are not real, they're fictitious, I made up, because you, know, you can't really have somebody getting killed in a real hotel, you know. But um, with things like that, I've driven those roads. I've driven the hard-packed dirt roads. I've driven the regular highways. I've driven off into the mountains. I mean, yeah, I've been where... There it is in the book that I'm writing about. So I, I have that feel because I love that. I literally love that area so much that um, hopefully here soon, next year or two, uh, my wife and I are planning to move to Santa Fe. I've already listed houses out there a couple of times, you know, but it's, uh, it, it's the place where I need to be. And we both have that, uh, that thought process, too, that, you know, this is, this is where we're going to end up. This is where it's going to be. And it's closer for me better to be able to just get in my truck and go drive somewhere of a location I want to use in the book rather than sit here in Indiana sometimes and go on Google Earth and try to find it, you know. So being there, you know, feeling the heat, feeling the cold, every smell, every sound, every, the way the wind feels, what it looks like. I mean, you can't get that from a computer. Yeah. You really have to be there to understand how this place feels. And what it does to you inside, because it's, it's, it's one of those things that once it's in you, it's never going to leave. Used to, I used to, we used to drive down from Colorado Springs. It's just like five hours yep. all the time. Love Santa Fe. What a great place. So Arthur, 
is a macho guy, the kind who nearly dies in a car accident, but is still aroused by his wife while lying drugged up in his hospital bed. I want to know if he's based on you or anyone in particular. <laughs> um, well, I mean, there there is, as part of their relationship, um, there are things in there that are, you write what you know, you know. So there are things in there that are me. There's things in there that are people I know, a concoction of people that I know, a Porter Sherry and my wife at Horn Yard. You know, it all comes together as being things that I'm familiar with and things that I know. Um, Arthur's little snippets of dialogue, you know, and, and the love he feels for his wife is, is things that, that I do share. And at some point to a point remembering, cause I'm 60 now. So remembering back to those days, I can call up a lot of things that uh, were intrinsic of, of a relationship at that point in time. So uh, there are some things on there that are, that I'm familiar with. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Arthur and his wife are both Native American from different clans, and you include many phrases in the Navajo language. So what is your relationship with the language? How did you learn that? Uh, it is very lyrical, very magical. I mean, I started a long time ago uh, picking up and trying to learn. I, I only learned a little bit, of which I've probably forgotten by now, of, of, of Lakota Sioux. But um, I, I have that books that I have uh, dictionaries and so forth and, and online things uh, for correct spellings because I know what I want to say and it will give me pronunciations and how to, how to use that term and a word and so forth. But uh, it's, it's a very difficult language if you're not intrinsically, you know, uh, a native American Navajo person to pick up uh, would take a lot of real effort. And I hope I have that enough, enough time in my life left to, to learn to be able to hold a conversation in that. Um, but I really, with that, I want to get, I would like to have somebody teach me because you can read, you can go through phonetically and so forth, but to have someone be able to teach me the nuances is what I would love to have. And um, I hope at some point I can, I can find someone to do that out there and, and, and grow my mind some more about some things. I would love to, uh, to learn the language and be able to, to speak with them. Uh, and not have to use English a lot of time because some of them, uh, the older uh, elders, don't uh, speak English. And yeah. I, uh, ask, I have to have a translator to ask somebody something, you know. But uh, the people I did meet with uh, out there do. Uh, so it was easier to converse with that and, and learn. Um, so I liked that aspect of that. The, the language itself is, is when you hear them talk it, it's like just, well, I, I would, I, I'd love to know what you're saying. You know, <laughs> because it's just one of those things that with any language, pretty much around the world, you'd have that too. But um, it's, it's more lyrical to me than a lot of things. This isn't on my list of questions, but it just occurs to me, was Navajo the language used during World War II uh, that the, uh, as code that the Germans could not, that the Nazis could not break? Right. Was that the code talkers, yeah. Yeah. No, Arthur talks, talkers, yeah. Um, yeah, so interesting. Arthur talks about the prejudice against Native Americans from oh. non Natives, not a big surprise. And the non-Natives uh, are referred to as Bilagana. Now in 2020, when we're finally coming to terms with systemic racism in this country, are Native Americans being sufficiently included, do you think, in the wokeness that's sweeping our nation? Really, I don't think so. I mean, um, I, I look at the situation 
And I've said on, on my social media pages sometimes that America is more than black and white. That's a significant part of it. But there's more than black and white in this country. And I don't think that they're, they're finally getting some representation that like we said in Washington, you know, and I don't think that they're really being addressed um, as far as things go. There, there's so much going on we see in the news and it's just, just disgusting and terrible the way things are going on. But um, they, it's just one of those things that there needs to be more done. And it's, it's going to be, I hate to say systemic, but it's generational because um, if people stop using those terms, then the young ones coming up won't be using those terms and will have different viewpoints and different ways of seeing people. Um, I look at the Navajo out there or any Native American tribe that's out there, uh, Hopi or whatever, and I, I, I have a wonder about it. I don't hold any preconceived notions of any prejudice against uh, anyone pretty much, but I, especially them. And I want to learn. I don't want to just say, you're this type, you're this type, you're this type, I'm this type, we're different. No, we're not. We're systemically the same. We just look different, have different ways of doing things, have different histories. Now, I, I point out sometimes, too, that what Anglo people like to call mythology, Greek mythology or Navajo mythology, you know, that to them, it's not mythology, it's truth. It's mm -hmm. reality. You know, this is the way things happen. No different than anybody else's history says the way things happen and progressed, you know. So I don't look at it from a negative eye. I look at it pretty much with a wondrous eye and, and want to learn about it rather than put it into a corner somewhere and, and think it's different. You know, you get, get into so many things of uh, people seeing differences. There's, there's even I do it on Facebook. There's too many people that want to argue don't argue you know just talk nobody talks anymore nobody has a conversation anymore nobody has a adult conversation anymore you know it's my way or the highway it's not the way it is you can't get anywhere with a closed fist you can get somewhere with an open hand so that's what i feel that's what i believe in and I love when I get out there and I'm able to sit and talk with these people. And I just, I just love being around them. I, you know, it's, there's so much to learn. It's, there's not enough time to learn everything. And it seems like there's too much time to, to hate quickly something you don't understand. Mm -hmm. We're all aware of the proliferation of Patriot militias in the last couple of years. Arthur suspects one such group in the book of murder. Um, and as you know, in the current administration, they're being lauded for being patriots. So can you say more about these so-called, these armed so-called patriots? Well, that's a terminology that is thrown around uh, loosely a lot of times. You know, uh, anybody can be a patriot that served in the, in, the, in the services and has a flag in their yard. You know, I mean, it, 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 that's a more divisive word than a lot of things. but. And as far as the book goes, yeah, I tried to find a way that things could work the way I wanted them to in the novel and have an old, you know, uh, adversary of Arthur's uh, come back uh, 
that was referenced in, in previous uh, things, but not in this book here. And and you learn more about that person. So they have, they have a history there that is an uneasy one at some point. And he does believe that they are involved in this somehow. And he has to try to figure out if that's the reason the uh, sons of his two, his first love were killed, you know, uh, or what the reason may have been. But it's one of those things that um, I kind of shy away from a lot of that. I I named it that because it just kind of seemed the way to frame it for the book, you know, but I'm not really part of any getting into that kind of stuff with those kind of things. Um, You, Arthur is very upset about the large amounts of government money that flowed into the reservation, mm-hmm. but they've been, the money has been mismanaged so that the Navajo and probably other tribes are living in poverty and chaos. What's going on to change that scenario? Hopefully when they, when they, uh, like anything else political, when they change out, you know, the presidents and the, the people that run uh, the reservations, uh, things might change and will change. I mean, there's several, a lot of money has gone in there. It was supposed to be for homes and housing, you know, that uh, didn't quite make it to homes and housing <laughs> for a lot of some other reasons. Um, that actually is true. That was an article I read in the uh, New Mexico, um, Santa Fe, New Mexican out there. But um, those kind of things, it's, it's political. And no matter sometimes who it is, Politics is politics, and it's it's one of those things. I don't think, uh, unfortunately, no matter where it is, uh, anything will be addressed fully. You know, they may oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, you know, and so forth. But um, no matter who it is, uh, political wise, uh, a lot of them don't seem to do what's right by the people they're serving, and I think they've significantly significantly had. Um, some problems with previous, you know, uh, reservation presidents and so forth that uh, they, you know, it, it goes back a long ways, even in different uh, tribes as well throughout the 70s and stuff. So it's all, it uh, doesn't seem to change much, but hopefully the new regime will say that's out there really cares and they seem to uh, care to do the right thing with that. So any funds that they do get, I hope will be put toward where it was supposed to go. Yeah. I want to point out that in this whole conversation, we did not discuss any of the characters because this is a mystery. And like any juicy mystery, there are red herrings and you go down a path and think you're there and you're wrong because it then twists and turns. So we, uh, I think, focused on the, the substance and not on the actual story, which was good. But um, I'd like to know if you can tell us what kind of trouble Arthur is going to get into in the next book of the series. Well, that is an interesting thing. Yeah, I, I, I stumbled into my, I saw several stories. And this, this one really struck at my heart um, concerning the missing and murdered indigenous women of the reservations in the U.S. and Canada. Um, I, I, I do things backward a lot of what I've been told is I'll think of a title first, and then I will start plotting out a story around that title. And what happened here was I did that. A title just popped in my head, wrote it down, you know, as we all do. And I have like 
six more titles and synopsis already written for more books already too. But um, I stumbled across this because it, it affected me that when I say it in the book, when, when, a, when a, a white girl goes missing off a golf course, everybody hears about it on the national news. Um, when these girls go missing, these girls and women, um, no one hears about it. it. It's just, it's local and that's where it stays. You know, um, nobody understands what really struck me was in 2016 alone, 5,712 girls men with, and women were missing in the reservations in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, some were found okay. Some were uh, un- unfortunately found uh, deceased either by as what normally it is, a ex-husband a, a or boyfriend or whatever it may have been. Uh, the majority aren't found at all. And I started listening to the families uh, talk about the situation, how helpless they feel that they don't hear anything going on. It may be three, six, you know, months, uh, and they have to call the police department and find out, well, would you do anything now? And they go, no, nothing more than we knew before, you know, um, not a lot of information. But I wanted to write about that using a fictitious missing girl. And I wanted to be able then to tell people and show people what actually happens to these girls. I don't get graphic. I don't think graphic is the way to go. It's not some like horror movie type thing where it's all blood and gore. I, I do like the old movies used to do. Lead you up to something and then show you the aftermath. You can fill in and the reader can fill in whatever happened in between in their mind. So my wife reads everything I do. And she read through this and she laughed sometimes at certain areas. She cried a lot um, with what was going on. And then she felt, you know, uh, joy at the end with things that were going on with that. So uh, I liked the fact that, that she had reached her that much that she understands more now of what's actually been going on. And um, a lot of people that I had a, uh, a Facebook live event last night and some people that were on there, a woman in particular uh, told me that her daughter was missing for three days and they found her. And then she could relate to what the third book was going to be about because uh, it's not that they're missing, you know, it's that you don't know anything. You get no updated information and it's it's hard to have a closure when they're just gone. And what you don't get is I want people to understand all the things that the families go through and miss. You you know may you'll miss birthdays for this person. You'll you'll miss if, it's, if your daughter is gone. You'll you'll miss her coming of age. You'll miss her getting married. You know having kids. You know, all these things down the road that disappear. The minute they vanish. And it's, again, one of those things that they like that I'm talking about, bringing it out in the open because uh, you can find it on the web. It's great. But nothing gets said really around. They mentioned a few things on the news a few months or so back about it, but that was it. Nothing's ever been mentioned again about it. So I hope that somebody can read this and understand it's it's gonna it's gonna tell you and show you things that movies uh, are are insinuating at, but don't really scratch the surface on 
Um, so I don't get graphic. There's no graphic things in it as far as, you know, what happens and so forth. But your mind can, can tell you what uh, had gone on and you pick it up later on with the aftermath of it. You know, so it's one of those things where uh, he's got to find out a woman uh, and her son comes to his house and wants to ask him to look into where she is and find find their daughter. And he goes to start that case and find that goes through many different things in there with that. It's ended up 278 pages uh, for this. And I think it's because I have more of a, of a story to tell with this particular realm. So I think people are going to like it. And again, it's going to enlighten people to aspects they don't know. And I probably have never heard about. A lot of people, when I mentioned that doing talks, when I was doing talks at libraries, um, had no idea that many girls and women went missing in one year. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those things that um, it's very intriguing. There are several different things that he goes through uh, in this and problems he has and things he has to work out and figure out and, and, and luck at one point plays a part in that. But uh, it's one of those things where, like you say, the red herrings are here and there and so forth. And I think that um, people will be extremely surprised at who the person is that finally has her. So that's going to be something to look forward to, you know. And uh, Okay. Well, thank you for shining a light on issues in this country that need some uh, exposure. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today, Mark. Wish you the best of luck. Pleasure talking to you. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Mark Edward Langley, author of Death Waits in the Dark. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.